Welcome to the Knowledge at Wharton podcasts. Knowledge at Wharton is the online research and business analysis journal of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Support for Knowledge at Wharton podcasts comes from Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their long-term financial goals at Vanguard.com. Lawton Burns is a professor of healthcare systems and management, director of the Wharton Center for Health Management and Economics, and author of a new book entitled The Business of Healthcare Innovation. While much has been written about doctors and hospitals, government regulations, and medical insurance issues, Burns' book looks at an area of healthcare that has not gotten much attention the producers of healthcare products, ranging from pharmaceuticals and biotechnology to medical devices and information technology. Yet Burns would argue that a focus on the producer side of the healthcare equation is critical, not just because we are increasingly more reliant on medical technology, but also because of the ever-escalating costs of advances in these areas. Professor Burns has agreed to talk to Knowledge at Wharton's McCool Pandya and me, Robbie Shell, about these issues. Professor Burns, in your book, you note that the costs of innovation have been rising steadily for decades and that the willingness of society to fund these new developments is under tremendous strain. What's an example of a particularly costly innovation? And is there a time when you think both the producers and users of medical technology will simply stop funding new drugs and medical procedures, or will at least use stricter criteria for deciding what to support and what not to support? Okay, well, an obvious example right now are called ICDs, implantable cardiac defibrillators, things that jumpstart the heart. Um, these devices cost $25,000 a piece. Uh, and what's interesting is that over the last few years, the Medicare program, which pays for the elderly's health insurance in the United States, has broadened the criteria of patients who can get, get these devices implanted in them and the government pays for it. So the government is actually expanding the volume of a device that's $25,000 a piece. And so if you multiply the volume times the price, you can see one reason for escalating healthcare costs is just that the government thinks this device ought to be implanted in more and more people. Now I think the, I don't think there will come a time in the foreseeable future when either the producers or the payers uh, in our healthcare system, put a stop to all this, and that's because the way our healthcare system works in the United States is, on the one hand, you have the people who pay for healthcare, uh, and they they put money into the system through reimbursement through fiscal intermediaries who handle reimbursement insurance coverage, and that money flows into the providers' hands, and then eventually into the suppliers' hands, the people who make these products. On the other hand, you have the producers of these products who have a relentless stream of innovation that's flowing towards the providers. And the way our government has decided to fig figure out you know, how much technology we can afford is they give the providers a certain amount of money, and then with that certain amount of money, they have to manage uh, the demand for an incredibly 
an unrelenting supply of new technology, and it's up to the providers to figure out how to do the rationing. So the providers have to choose between, well, do I want this technology or that technology? What do my patients want? What do I want to use? What's at the scientific forefront of the field? And so it's, it's a very decentralized rationing process. But as, you know, in the big picture, you know, the reason why we have so much new technology in the United States is that we can afford it. And as long as our national income keeps rising, we'll keep spending it on this technology. Uh, that, that leads to a very interesting question. Is there a way of thinking about what technology is worth paying for and what isn't? I mean, what, what's a justified innovation in your view? Well, that's a great question. Uh, you, you know, in the United States, we've ha- we used to have an Office of Technology Assessment in the federal government. That office no longer exists. And now the way technology is assessed technology assessment now takes place at a local level. And it takes place in one of two areas. Either the insurance companies do it, or what I think is going to increasingly have to happen is the providers are going to have to do it. And maybe both sides will have to do it. But right now it's a very decentralized, fragmented process. Medicare only does you know, the only national coverage for about 50 or so technologies. Everything else is left up to the local insurance carriers in our United States. So here again, it's a decentralized process. There are no standards. And to be honest, I don't think we have a very sophisticated uh, technology assessment system. With the exception of the FDA and the testing and approval of new drugs. Now that is a pretty rigorous process. But once you get past the drugs and the biologicals, which the FDA also approves, then, you know, the testing of new technology uh, isn't quite as rigorous. I mean, the testing of new devices is basically, you know, to make sure they don't kill people. But it's, we're not testing new devices like the way we test new drugs. And information technology isn't tested at all. What role specifically do consumers play in the escalating costs of healthcare in the sense that they always demand the latest new treatments? I mean, are we as a society conditioned to always expect the best for ourselves no matter what the cost? You know, what, what are the trade-offs here? Well, I think uh, consumers in the United States are spoiled. Uh, we want the latest. Uh, we have the insurance coverage, and we expect the insurance coverage to pay for it, and we want it right away. And if you look at the diffusion of new technologies from country to country, the thing that really separates the United States from everywhere else is that more people get access to new technology faster in the United States. They don't have to wait very long. They don't have to get in queues. There's very little you know, formal or, or, or top-down rationing done by the healthcare system. It's all, you know, you go into your doctor, your doctor orders it, and it, you know, the bed's available. Um, and the schedule permits, you, you get the uh, procedure, you get the device, you get the drug. Other countries, they ration that explicitly, but not in the United States. Are there any examples of uh, technologies that consumers demand, but which you think from an economic perspective or even perhaps from a social perspective would have been better left undiscovered? Well, they're interesting. That's where you get into the ethics of all of this. And Art Kaplan over at the... Uh, over in the uh, over in the health system, is quite uh, uh, vocal about you know some of the um, lifestyle drugs uh, for you know impotency and things like that, and the way these the way some of these devices and products have been marketed to really appeal to a much broader class of people, and the way the advertising messages are crafted 
to appeal to a much broader set of people than was originally intended. That's probably where the, the, you know, the uh, boundary line was crossed. And I think that some of the same thing happened with the Merck's and Merck Vioxx case, and that is Vioxx was made for a specific segment of patients. And then it gets over-prescribed for broader and broader sets of patients, and that's where those heart problems occurred. So I, I don't know if, if there's a specific technology we want to stop, but it may, some of these new technologies may be applied too broadly to a wide spectrum of the population. You talk a lot about the, the pharmaceutical, biotech, medical device, and IT sectors and the growing convergence among them. What do you mean by that, and what are examples of, of this convergence, and what, what challenges does that pose? Okay. Uh, well, there are two types of convergence. One is on the R&D side. In order to, to develop a new product, uh, a manufacturer in one sector, let's say devices, needs to draw on another sector, such as a pharmaceutical uh, company who has a drug that can coat the uh, the uh, device, and that's where we got drug eluding stents. So that's a convergent product in the sense that you needed inputs or supplies, components from two different sectors. But convergent technology is also occurring in terms of the application, the commercialization of these products. For example, we're finding out now that to do a a knee implant or a hip implant accurately, you need to have imaging equipment. And so you have, you have multiple technologies being used as, as you're doing a procedure. Another illustration would be how the pharmaceutical industry increasingly is relying on the imaging industry to look at what's happening inside the body once this drug is administered. So both on the development side as well as on the application or commercialization side, you'll find technologies being used increasingly with one another. Now, the implications of that are manifold. One is these products are more expensive. Okay, a drug-eluting stent costs $2,500 versus a bare metal stent costs maybe $1,000 of that. Uh, secondly, um, it will require the manufacturers in one sector to increasingly know about the manufacturers in other sectors because if products become more convergent, whether on the R&D side or on the commercialization side, you're going to have to know a little bit more about the potential partners you're going to have down the road as you develop your product line. Uh, a couple of questions about the convergence side. I mean, if, if indeed, as you say, these different sectors start to converge more, uh, what kind of business models would work? Uh, for example, would you see more alliances? Uh, and to, to sort of expand on that question further, uh, to what extent would you see alliances and globalization working hand-in-hand hand to drive down costs uh, uh, of, of de developing new technology uh, to give, to, to, for example, in the area of implants that you mentioned? Uh, I know that there are now uh, companies in, say, places like India that are offering you know, hip implants and sun sand and surgery is how the medical tourism is a growth industry. Do you think any of these will have an impact on uh, the costs as well? Well, actually, the convergent products tend to be more expensive. And so I don't think convergence is going to drive down cost. In fact, I think it's going to drive up cost. Just to give you one illustration, other than the ones we've already done, is now when implant implants are placed in, the let's say, the knee, by an orthopedist. There is a tendency now for some orthopedists to use a biological agent to reduce infections and things like that. And when you add the biological product to the cost of the implant itself, it's got a several factor 
uh, increase in the cost of the whole thing uh, without any proven efficacy. But that's, what, that's where these things are going. We're experimenting in some ways with these things. There's a belief that the biologicals will help uh, with the use of implants. I don't see convergence leading to lower cost. I see it leading to higher cost. As far as the alliances go, that's a great question because when, when you bring these convergent products together, let's say, for, for example, a device and a pharmaceutical, like a drug-eluting stent, and you have to look at the relative sizes of those two markets, the drug market and the device market, and the sizes of the companies coming together in that alliance. Well, for a device company, the sale of that drug-eluting stent will be a major portion of its revenues. But for a pharmaceutical company, the sale of the drug that gets coated on top of the stent or the device is minimal. And so for them, the alliances just aren't that big or that important. But for a, a device company, they're incredibly important. So there's an asymmetry there in terms of who's interested in these things and just how much emphasis or investment they want to put into it. So that'll make for a whole er interesting area of research looking at these rather asymmetric alliances where one party's very interested in it and it's a big part of their business model. But for the other partner, it's sort of a, you know, you know, sideline of interest. Uh, as far as the uh, going to India for the um, ha having your surgeries done, you know, the, the, there's a definite trend for countries in Southeast Asia to set up these places uh, where you have an alternative place to get the surgery. I don't think that has much to do with conversion products. Uh, and that, that's sort of a growing industry uh, that I think will increase in importance. It, you know, it's going to be a very lucrative market for those countries in Southeast Asia. I don't know how many Americans they'll be drawing because you know most Americans have 85% have insurance coverage, but I think people in other places who have to wait, who face rationing and queuing, or who want to want to you know in, combine their surgery with a nice vacation, I think that will have a decided advantage. Your book describes the pace at which the healthcare industry has embraced IT as glacial lagging far behind other industries. Why is that? Well, healthcare has never invested much in IT. Uh, recent statistics show that maybe healthcare invested up to 3% of its revenues in IT, which isn't, which isn't very big compared to other industries. Uh, secondly, uh, healthcare has, is uh, burdened with what are known as legacy information systems and providers are reluctant to swap those for the new systems that have come on the market that aren't necessarily yet proven oftentimes there's a lot of hype about the uh, functionality of these systems and you have you know it's one thing to have new information technology but it's a whole other issue to implement it and train people to use it and what we learn from computerized physician order entry systems is that oftentimes those implementation and training costs dwarf the actual cost of the technology, and so it's like the the other dollar of healthcare IT spending, and you know a lot of providers are going into this field very slowly because you don't want to upset the system, because all your downtime just messes up doctors trying to enter orders or trying to dictate histories and physicals or getting results back, you know, and that slows down the system. You lose money on a on a big scale in real time once you try to swap information systems in and out. So there's a natural reluctance to go into these things. But, you know, I think even looking at our own healthcare system, you know, we've, we've experimented and invested in lots of different information 
systems over the last 10, 15 years, and not all of them have been colossal successes. And so there's there's sort of a, uh, I don't want to say a cynicism out there, but there's a real reluctance to to drop something that works and that's already been paid for, and then buy something new in which you incur some debt. You, you referred earlier to the fact that uh, you didn't see globalization particularly driving down costs as far as implants and devices is concerned. Uh, what about the globalization of R&D itself? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a number of companies in emerging markets now almost seem to outsource or, or insource the ability to uh, jointly develop new devices or new new technologies. Uh, do you see that having a factor on costs, uh, an effect on costs? Yeah, well, let me, let me just talk about globalization sort of globally first. And that is, when you look at uh, the healthcare system, there's only one, one part of our healthcare system or anybody's healthcare system that's global. And that's basically the pharmaceutical industry. And mm-hmm. to a lesser extent, the... Um, the um, uh, device and biotechnology industries. Pharma- pharmaceutical industry is truly a global industry. Um, but after that, the rest of the healthcare system, the insurance side, the doctor side, the hospital side, the long-term care side, those are all local or national industries at best. And so we don't really, when you get to healthcare, the only global part of healthcare is some of the technology sectors themselves. Now, I think what's happening in terms of globalization is you have a lot of countries want to become biotechnology hubs. Mm-hmm. Um, United States is still the leader in biotechnology, but other countries around the world want to become biotechnology hubs as well. And so we'll have multiple hubs. And I, it's more like a multiple domestic strategy rather than a global industry. Um, same thing's true of devices. Most of the big device companies are in the United States. Then we have a, a handful in Europe. Um, but here again, um, it's more like a multi-domestic strategy. We don't really have global industries outside of the pharmaceuticals. And so I don't see globalization there uh, being a big force to drive down costs. The one thing I do see in the pharmaceutical industry is that the pharmaceutical industry is basically outsourced R&D to the biotech industry. Um, And that's where a lot of the new products, uh, the new approvals, uh, in the drug industry are coming from. The pharmaceutical industry is also outsourcing a lot of the non-core functions of uh, pharmaceutical uh, research and development and commercialization. You have contract research organizations, contract sales organizations, uh, outsourcing a lot of the, uh, you know, uh, filling and things like that. Um, so we've done some of that and that has made that industry a little bit more efficient, but I don't necessarily think those efficiencies are that great or that's going to show up uh, as in the form of lower drug prices going forward. Uh, one final question. It seems that when you read the newspaper these newspapers these days, there are two big stories that keep cropping up. One is that CEOs are overpaid, and the other is that pharmaceuticals charge too much for drugs. So there's the continuing debate with pharmaceuticals being criticized for charging prices that are too high, making too much money, not being innovative. Uh, the pharmaceuticals will respond by pointing to the long, long lag times for for drug development and the fact that they get more quote dry wells than wet wells. What's your take on this debate? Well, there's some truth to that. That you know the pharmaceutical industry is subject to much greater risk and reward, and there's a tremendous amount of risk in trying to develop a new drug, and uh, the the number of dry wells you know is vastly vastly outnumbers the number of things that succeed. 
at the same time, the pharmaceutical industry has been, you know, during the last 10 years, they've been suffering a productivity decline in terms of new drug approvals. And they've spent a lot more of their money on marketing and especially ramping up their sales forces. And so if you had to point your finger at the pharmaceutical companies, you know, it's uh, pushing pills would probably be the number one complaint. Uh, maybe the price of drug, but definitely the pushing of the pills. And you can see that there's a backlash now, even our own healthcare system, among many other uh, large healthcare systems in the country, are now either barring pharmaceutical sales reps from coming in the door, or they have standards of engagement such that when the sales reps come in, it's on the hospital's terms, not on the sales reps' terms. Sales reps' terms. Um, and I think that's one way to limit some of this over-investment in marketing. But that's, you know, as we make the point in the book, these companies succeed on two grounds. One is coming up with a new innovation, and the second is commercializing it. And the sales reps are on the commercializing side of it. And so you can understand with, when the pharmaceutical companies have a problem on the R&D side, they ramp up on the commercialization side and start selling the heck out of whatever it is they have. Great. Thanks very much for coming by. Thank you.